Good morning, everybody. How are you this morning? No rush. It occurs to me that maybe you don't know, like, there are, there are Sundays, certain Sundays, that we come up and change the altar. If you notice people during that song come up and change the altar, the color of the altar. Just to explain if, if it's an unusual thing to you, um, that's when we changed in the liturgical year. So last week was Pentecost and the color was like red. And now we have entered what's called ordinary time in the liturgical year. So that's why we, that's why we do that, if you were wondering. Yeah, so this is a new season of ordinary time. In fact, it's not the most popular Sunday among preachers. <laughs> For all the other seasons and special days of the year, you know, we normally get to dig into this interesting gospel narratives. Most of the other festival or feast days of the church uh, calendar celebrate an event. But guess where we find ourselves today? Did you have any guesses? Trinity Sunday. Yeah. Trinity Sunday. You notice Tim and Cole, where they've hightailed it. <laughs> on, the other, on the other feast days, we get to commemorate happenings in the life of Christ, right? Mary's visit from Gabriel, telling her that she was going to bear a child. The season of Epiphany, the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration, as confusing as it is. Jesus riding into Jeru Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then, of course, we celebrate the empty tomb of Easter, then the wonderful ascension, the coming of God's Spirit on Pentecost like we did last week, all leading up to Holy Trinity Sunday when we celebrate church doctrine. <laughs> so teachers dread this day because we see it as kind of a dry, at least I do, dry, dusty theological topic after the exciting and kind of earthy part of the liturgical year that came before it. It's like there's this raucous party of Easter and Pentecost and then it all comes to a screeching halt while an old, you know, crotchety man shuffles up to the pulpit with a big leather-bound book so he can straighten us out on our church doctrine. That's what it feels like. And the music, you know, is like, wah, wah. <laughs> but let's get right into it, yeah? So God is three persons, but one being. God is one and yet three. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father or the Son. But the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, and God is one. So one plus one plus one equals one. Oh, you guys are brilliant. It's that simple. It's no wonder that so many of the early church councils were called to try and make sense of the Trinitarian formula. The church took its time in uh, deciding on coming up with the doctrine of the Trinity and deciding on what all that would mean. A lot of ink and a lot of blood was spilled on the matter. So it's kind of hard to see where there is actually something to celebrate on Church Doctrine Sunday. Not a lot of good news in that. The confusing doctrinal issue seems a bit too dry and distant to actually celebrate. But here we are waiting, myself included, for the second year in a row to talk about the good news <laughs> of the unexplainable doctrine. <laughs> But here is the beautiful thing, actually. You don't actually need to understand the Trinity to, to enter into the life of the Trinity. There's tons of things that we don't understand that we believe and trust. They tell me that within the core of the sun, this is one of them, 
The temperature is about 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times what it is here on Earth. And the sun's core is, has an insanely hot temperature and unthinkable pressure. That all combines to create nuclear reactions. In each reaction, I know there are people here that are going to tell me if I get this wrong, uh, the protons fuse together to create an alpha particle which is less massive than the protons. So the difference in that mass is expelled as energy. And after a million years, through a process called convection, this energy from the core of the sun finally reaches the surface where it's expelled as heat and light. Now that's interesting, right? <laughs> but you know what? I don't need to know all that to get a tan. You know, there's loads of things we don't understand that we know for sure, right? I mean, it, it would probably be easier if everyone, for everyone if God were just a bit easier to peg down, but it's just not what we get in the scripture, is it? In scripture, we have a hard to peg down God right from the beginning, literally. The Genesis account does not say, let me make humankind in my own image, but let's, let us make humankind in our own image according to our likeness. This is not a me God, but a, a we God. God from the beginning is not a God of bad math. God is a God of community. The triune nature of God assures that God is in fellowship with God's self. In the beginning is creator, word, and spirit that all commingle together to bring forth creation. So God creates communally. In the Trinitarian nature of God, individuality and communality are related in a really beautiful, life-giving dance of creation. So whether or not we understand it or whatever names we choose to use for it, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Parent, Holy Child, and Holy Spirit, I've even heard Creator, Redeemer, and Advocate, the three aspects remain distinct while the identity remains one through mutual relatedness giving and receiving, back and forth, all throughout time. And the image of the relational dance of God and God's self is wide enough to include us, the created. The mutual indwelling of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit offers us the created space in which we live into and fullness of, in a fullness of our identity. The early church fathers had a, had a word to describe the idea of that kind of indwelling together it was called perichoresis, if you want to know the Greek. It includes the idea of complete inter kind of permeation, a kind of perfect, loving indwelling. Or it can mean something like a dance, a divine dance of perfect love for all eternity. The early church began to sort out some possible misunderstandings, and there were many. What the Trinity is not, the Holy Trinity is not a chain of command. It's not an amorphous energy field of love. It's not three gods who just get along really well, like the three musketeers. Each person in the Trinity is irreducibly and uniquely itself, distinct in three persons, but yet perfectly united in being, in love, and in purpose. It's a true community of perfect love. That sounds pretty good, right? Community of perfect love. But the whole thing is, is hard to kind of wrap our minds around, no doubt. John Wesley once said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Artists have struggled with this too, and trying to 
come up with uh, depictions to capture the mystery of the Trinity. Let's, we can look at a few today. We can take that guy down. <laughs> I keep seeing him in my peripheral vision. Um, it seems that in a lot of early art, uh, the spirit is uh, uh, commonly depicted as a dove in reference to the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism, and the dove is the spirit descending on him, as in uh, that fresco. Of course, there are images of the Trinity using the human form because, you know, although God is not human, how else do artists render the Trinity? Often God the Father is an old man with a white beard, perhaps derived from the name given to God in Daniel, Ancient of Days. In this picture, God is on the right, I believe, Jesus on the left, and the dove is in the middle, if you can see it. In early medieval art, uh, the Father is sometimes represented by hands, just hands, appearing kind of from the cloud. The hands are at the very top there in that picture. Um, later then in the West, the throne of mercy was a, a moniker and became a kind of common motif, showing the father seated on a throne, supporting either a crucifix, as in this is the top of a column, if you can kind of see that, or later then um, supporting a kind of slumped, crucified Jesus, similar to the Pietà. There's a super interesting depiction, I think interesting at least, in stained glass, uh, like this one in an ancient church in France, showing the Trinity as three identical faces, very old. Some representations are not human at all, uh, like these tenors rabbits. The original stained glass on these rabbits uh, were destroyed during the time of Oliver Cromwell because the Puritans objected to any objects of veneration. But what this depicts in glass, where the repair is really obvious in that one, but is in this sketch of the three rabbits. If you look closely, there are only three ears where there should be six, showing the interconnectedness of the Trinity in a kind of subversive way. And those uh, rabbit images are all over churches in England. But my favorite depiction of this invitation that we have into the life of the Trinity is this one. It's the Russian Orthodox icon by Andrei Rublev from the 14th century. Now, I know I've shown you this before because I, it's my favorite, and so I thought it bear, would bear some repeating, but also my husband told me that nobody will remember what I said a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe if you don't remember, this is Andrei Rublev's icon. And as we look at this icon, what we see is an image inspired by the Abraham story of the three visitors of God whom Abraham welcomed. The three figures in the icon are depicted as angels seated at an altar table. They have identical faces, but their posture and their clothing differ, like we're looking at the same figure shown in three different ways. But it's in the way, I think, in which the figures relate to one another, which is so compelling. Here's a kind of modernized version of it, just so you can see it a little more clearly. The father on the left looks to the son, gesturing toward the word made flesh, and Christ gazes back at the father and points to the spirit, and the spirit then opens up the circle, kind of in the foreground of the icon, to receive us, the viewer. Between the spirit and the father in the Trinity icon is an open space at the table in which we, the viewer, are brought in. We're brought in to sit in communion with the Godhead. They incline their heads toward each other, uh, or actually toward the father, but continue then to follow this sort of relational circle in the picture, just one sort of deferring to the other without any subservience, because each person wields equal authority and power in this relationship. 
So we see an image of God's relational circle into which we are welcomed. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit welcomes us to the table. It's a really lush image, I think, of how God relates to God's self and to us and how we should then relate to one another. A triune image of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, creator, redeemer, advocate, is not an unknown God. It's a God who is revealed in the word and in the meal that we share together among the beloved community throughout all ages and all places. This triune God is made known through the scripture, through the prophets, through the cross, through the gospel. And this God is the one who welcomes us into this sacred life of togetherness that's really commanded by Christ in the gospels. So yeah, it would be an awful lot easier if we could peg it all down, but luckily it's just not the case. Instead, we have a triune God who's impossible to explain, but reveals God's self not actually in the minutia of a doctrine, but in the bread, in the cup, in our baptism, and I think maybe most wonderfully in community. Because at the center of the universe is this relationship, the relationship that has, that has always been. It's out of that relationship that we were created, and it's for the relationship that we were created. At the center of the mystery of God being God is actually an intimate relationship, a fellowship, a community of love. So we could talk about that for just a minute. In plain English, to be fully human, we have to be in relationship. Genesis 1.26 that Kristen read for us said, let us create mankind in our image, according to our likeness. God does not exist alone, and neither should we. God tells Adam in the garden, it's not good for you to be alone. Not because Adam was going to be lonely, but more so because Adam alone is not Adam in the image of God. God is not solitary, and Adam doesn't reflect God, who God is until he shares his life with somebody else. People who need people are not just the luckiest people in the world. That's my people. That's an old reference. They're, they're the only people, actually, who reflect the nature and the character of God. So after God said, let's make mankind in our image, God did it, and he gave Adam a companion. So to be to even exist is to be related to each other, to be related to one another. Because if it's true of God, it has to be true of us. It is because we are created in his image that loneliness is so crushing, that broken relationships just really cripple us, and that death or loss uh, are really painful. A lack of those relationships is a breach in our actual essential nature. So I know what you're thinking, we got it, you had us at community, get friends, um, we're, you're convinced, right? But at Redemption Church, you know, we always say that we don't try to contrive community for you, but we try to create a space that is fertile for that to happen just organically or naturally. And I know that's a little amorphous to say to people, but I think what we mean by that is Community is not really a goal to be achieved. It's a gift that we can receive. When we treat community as a product that we have to manufacture, you know, instead of a gift, it actually eludes us. When we try to make it happen, you know, out of some kind of de design or determination, we exhaust ourselves usually and, and just sever the connections that we were actually really longing for. 
We try not to grasp at community building because it's the opposite of what I think we need to do, which is just to relax into our created condition and receive the gift of community that we've been given. But receptivity involves a lot of inner work, doesn't it? But I believe that community begins in the recesses, those little places in our heart where the capacity for connectedness is really cultivated in a contemplation. And I don't mean sitting cross-legged and, and you know, chanting a mantra, although that is totally works for you. Uh, I, can't, I just can't get it back up off the ground if I'm cross-legged. But by contemplation, I mean any way we have of really penetrating the illusion of separateness. Any touching the reality of the interdependence that we need, that interdependence that we see in the Trinity. And at least for me, my deepest seasons of that kind of contemplation have been failure, suffering, and loss. Unfortunately, when I flourish, I can kind of maintain the illusion of separateness. All of us can, can't we? It's, it's easy to imagine that I alone am responsible for all my good fortune. But when I'm suffering, I, I see the secret kind of that's hidden in plain sight, that I need other people for comfort, for encouragement, for support. About a year ago now, I got a phone call that my dad was sick. He had found like a lump in his neck, and he had gotten one of those pretty scary diagnoses. You know, the call you, you do not want to get. I've had a couple of those in my life. Um, and this made me think about how probably everyone has gotten that call. And when the phone call came, it, it just changed your world a little bit. It can be good news, of course, a job offer, a birth of a child, but it's often a crisis, a call from a doctor, or you see that you know, your kid's school on the caller ID or something's happened with your kids. I can, I can think of some phone calls right now that I remember exactly where I was and when it came, and I can, I'm sure you can too. When my dad was ill and he eventually passed, you know, guess who showed up at my house? with food, with just encouragement, with just hugs. It was my community group here at this church. They fed us. They sent us texts and notes of support and encouragement. They were really there for us. And this is what I know, that one day a phone call will come for you. One day there's going to be news that just rocks your world. And when that call comes, I think it finds all of us in one of two places. It will find you living mostly in isolation and disconnected from other people, where there just feels like you don't have anybody to reach out to. Or it will find you living in community. You'll be surrounded by people who know you and love you because you've, you've eaten together, you've laughed together and cried together, and you've learned, you've struggled together, and they'll, they'll hold you up and they'll strengthen you and support you and keep you together as if by some invisible force. I think it is an invisible force. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes contrasted the strength of people who are living in relationship with the fragility and the vulnerability of people living in isolation. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And, you know, don't let me paint a picture here of idyllic relationships. I mean, it is, it is not the Garden of Eden. You know, dealing with conflict and betrayal and just annoyances are an inevitable part of living closely with others. We can be the worst sometimes, but 
those don't have to be the, the nail in the coffin of community. In fact, I think that often those kind of things are actually the gateway into the, the real thing. But we have to be willing to get past the honeymoon, don't we? And stay in it, even when it feels like, or less like Garden of Eden and more like a crucible. If we seek community to be happy, you know, the journey kind of ends before it can begin. But I think if we're willing in community together to confront some of that unhappiness that we carry within ourselves, the experiment can kind of go on. And happiness, or really better said, a sense of meaning or an at-homeness is the outcome. Rublev's icon uh, is, portrays this divine perfection, but we all know that unlike a, the dynamic world in which we live, the icon is actually static. And community is anything but static, isn't it? Community is a verb, it is not a noun, and community is always changing, it's always being tested, and it's fragile. But if we engage in real, authentic community, I think you know, we will run headlong into the messiness of the human condition, but it's also where we find deep connection and mutuality, because it's the blueprint from which we were created, because we're children of the Trinity. God's plan is actually for no one to be alone, for everybody to be known, to be loved, and to be cared for and cherished, like we see in the Trinity. And his plan for that is called the church. I know we don't do this perfectly around here. I, I know sometimes the opportunities are not exactly, they don't fit your schedule or we don't have a group for you to jump into right at the right time. But I invite you to come to something. Show up to the food pantry once a month. I promise you, you will meet people. Hang out with uh, the team that takes care of little kids down the hall. You'll make connections. Come to the round tables that we have regularly or the baptism this summer. Or just introduce yourself to someone. We, don't, we do not mind an awkward interaction around here. I mean, we're kind of the lab for that, honestly. We are invited to find our place in the circle of the Trinity, I believe, and in community. Even more, we're also commissioned to take the hand of another, preferably maybe the hand of someone to whom you would not normally reach, and bring them into the circle in some small way. Invite them to the table. So for you folks that have been at Redemption a while, like me, you know, we've kind of settled into our strange little group, but we have, a, we have an assignment too, don't we? I ask you to look around, and I know a lot of you do this really well, and if there's an unfamiliar face, invite them into your orbit. I think the reality of the Trinity compels us to, to meet the people that sit in our row or the folks out in the atrium, and maybe it compels you to lead something a group or a triad or some kind of ministry around here. Believe me, even if you think you don't really need anyone right now, you kind of got life wired, someone needs you. In Hebrews it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. I think that the time to build community is now. I don't want to wait for a phone call. And like in the circle of love of the icon, we are invited to live as a community that's gathered in love, not perfectly, but as sisters and brothers without fear, without hierarchy, without competition, and without shame. Amen? Let's pray. You guys want to stand? Father, I pray we will look to the Trinity today 
Lord, grateful that we don't, we don't have to understand it all fully to experience it fully. I ask that you guide us into deeper relationships in this body, Lord, and help us to see what you are calling us to when it comes to community. In your name we pray. Amen. We are going to take communion to now. We're going to receive that together. Um, if you're unfamiliar with how we do that, the ushers will come down and just release you row by row. You can come forward and the servers will say to you, um, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond with just amen or however you're comfortable. Um, keep in mind that there's no barrier to this table. Uh, it was, if you look to Christ, uh, this is a place for you. So all are welcome. Let's first uh, read what 1 Corinthians says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup today. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies today, we may, may we receive you once again, Lord. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good. And that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? <laughs> 